Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and welcome back to the second episode of With Friends Like These, Converts Edition. This season, we're drilling down on a subject that has long fascinated me, and I know it has fascinated our audience. What makes people stop believing one thing and start believing something else? And frankly, is there anything outsiders can do about that process? Our first few episodes have been laying out the bleak bad news about getting people to change their minds. But it's also what makes converts so fascinating. Most people do not change their beliefs. They, in fact, will do all sorts of logical and moral gymnastics to keep from changing their beliefs, admitting they're wrong, basically. And last week, we talked to a social and psychological researcher about confirmation bias. This week, we're going deeper into the brain itself. Jonas Kaplan is a cognitive neuroscientist at the University of Southern California's Brain and Creativity Institute. And we talked about politics, identity, and how our emotional reactions to evidence help determine what we believe to be true. I have heard that feelings aren't facts, but Jonas says facts are are feelings. Coming right up, Jonas Kaplan. Jonas Kaplan, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. So on our last episode, uh, we had a social psychologist named Carol Tavris come on to talk about cognitive dissonance. And she explained that as the kind of experience or sensation that happens when you come up against something that conflicts with your beliefs. And she compared it to like hunger or feeling cold. And that it's one of those things that when it happens, the brain just reacts immediately to try and fix it. So I read read up on what you're doing, and it seems to me that your research suggests something similar, but I saw that your research partner was even more vivid in describing it. Like she compared it, she compared coming across contrary evidence to your beliefs as stumbling on a bear in the woods. <laughs> well, in many ways, it is like that. I mean, I think one of the important things to note is that what really does matter is how you feel when you encounter information. We like to think of ourselves as rational beings, but really feeling and emotion are so much a part of all of our cognition, and you can't really separate them out. So the first thing to note is that how we feel when we encounter information that contradicts our beliefs is really important. And when we look into the brain, we've done some brain imaging experiments to look at what's happening in the brain when people experience this, when we come across information that, that contradicts what we, what we hold uh, true. And we find that brain systems that support feeling and emotion are very important. In fact, the degree to which people activate those systems when they're challenged can predict how much they're going to change their minds. So some of those systems have to do with feelings of fear, like you would encounter, like you would feel when you encountered a bear, um, the amygdala, for example. But we also see activation in a brain region called the insular cortex. And the insular cortex is really interesting because it integrates all of these feelings that we get from our body. And it's particularly important for feelings of disgust. You know, you can think of um, encountering information that you don't like as similar in, in terms of the brain to countering spoiled food or some kind of, in, some kind of you know, bad um, food that your brain wants you to get away from. 
Now, I want to talk a little bit about how you know this, because you do do brain imaging studies, which I think everyone kind of understands in sort of a popular way, right? This is a brain lighting up. I understand the brain doesn't actually itself light up. That would be cool. But what is it that you did to sort of show this? You conduct an experiment in the lab, right, to see what would kind of get active, we use a technology called functional magnetic resonance imaging. And the way it works is that the person lies inside an MRI machine. It's the same kind of machine that you see in a hospital if you're getting your knee checked out, for example. And it allows us to take pictures of the brain while you're thinking. And when the brain is, is activated, when, when we're using the brain, it changes. It's a lot of dynamics in the brain. We change how much we're using different parts of the brain from moment to moment. And those changes are accompanied by changes in blood flow brain sends more blood to the parts of the brain that are more active. And the oxygenation in that blood is something we can detect with the MRI machine. So we're taking pictures over time, lots and lots of pictures, and then we're measuring those subtle changes that happen from the blood oxygenation in the images, and we can correlate them with what you're thinking at the time. And so how does it work for someone inside one of those big noisy machines to come across contrary information to what they believe? Yeah, it's a pretty unnatural situation. So you're lying in this tube and it's making these incredible banging noises. Um, and we have a little mirror in front of uh, the person's face. So that allows you to see a computer screen. And then we just project things on the computer screen. So in our experiments, we show people statements and we start with a statement that we know you believe in. And then we show you a series of arguments against that belief. And at the end of the experiment, we ask you again how strong your belief is. And so we can measure whether you changed your mind at all. So tell me more about what you did in this experiment. So we do a couple of different things in this experiment. One thing is that we compare people's reactions to different kinds of uh, challenges to their beliefs, different kinds of beliefs that we have. Because one of the things we thought going into the experiment is that for certain things, it's actually not that hard to change our minds. When, it, when it's really hard to change our minds is when it comes to something that we have an investment in, something that we really care about. And we think it really has to do with identity. The beliefs that become part of our identity are the ones that are hard to change. So in our experiment, we were testing people who identified as strong political liberals. And we showed them two different kinds of belief statements. Half of the beliefs were political statements, things that we knew they had an investment in, in believing. And the other half of the things were non-political statements, statements about the world that they claim to believe just as strongly as the political statements, but they didn't have a personal investment in them. Things like, Thomas Edison invented the light bulb. Everyone says they believe that, but when we present our arguments against it, you know, we say that his patent was invalidated and that really someone else <laughs> was. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry to all the Edison fans out there, but there's a it lot of good Tesla. evidence. It was Tesla. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, people are actually willing to change their minds on that when we give them the evidence. But when it comes to something like abortion or taxes, um, people are very resistant and they have a, a personal stake. And we wanted to compare what's happening in the brain when people see challenges to those two different kinds of beliefs. And then the second comparison that we make is across people. We look at what's happening in the people that do tend to change their minds a lot. Some people are really flexible in their beliefs is the positive way of saying it. Maybe gullible is the better way of looking at it. <laughs> I like flexible. Well, let's, 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 flexible sounds so much better. We'll stick with flexible. And then some people were very um, resistant and didn't change their minds at all. They're very stiff with their beliefs. So we're able to compare what's different across those people. So the, the first thing that we find when we compare the political beliefs to the non-political beliefs is that there's a whole uh, network of brain regions that comes on when people are 
experiencing the challenges to their political beliefs. That, that is there much less when people are experiencing challenges to their non-political beliefs. And that network is a network of the brain that's very interesting. We don't fully understand it yet. And so it's very hard to look at brain imaging images and to try to figure out what's happening psychologically from what's happening in the brain. We call that reverse inference, and it's kind of problematic for a lot of reasons. But we do know that this brain mutation is, is important for, for some cognitive tasks that have to do with identity and self-reflection. And that fits with the idea that it's, something special happens when our identity is challenged, when our sense of who we are, when our story of ourselves is challenged. It makes it very difficult to change our minds. You did say all your subjects were self-identified liberals. Is there a reason that you chose to work with self-identified liberals? It was really just convenience. When we first started the experiment, um, we thought it might be nice to have both conservatives and liberals. And there's some really interesting reasons to have both. We know that liberals and conservatives can have different uh, brain activity in a lot of circumstances, especially in some of the regions that we're interested in. Um, but uh, finding the conservatives who were committed to their beliefs as strongly as the liberals in our immediate uh, Los Angeles campus environment turned out to be <laughs> harder than, than we anticipated. So one day we'd like to do the conservatives. So it was basically the population you had at hand. That's right. So I'm fascinated by the way that there is apparently this distinction between how we believe in something that's non-political and and what it's like when we believe in something that's political or part of our identity. I think that's... I feel like that distinction is much clearer, right? It's not really politics versus non-politics. It's identity versus extraneous or like, you know, marginal. Is that that right? That's right. It could be, it doesn't have to be politics. It could be religion. It could be sports. I mean, you could be a huge Yankees fan and then it's difficult to change your beliefs about the Yankees. The brain is really uh, tasked with protecting ourselves. That's really what the brain is. It's a huge complex machine for protecting ourselves and our, our bodies, really. But our self isn't just our body. Our self is also our psychology and our mind and our idea of who we are psychologically. And so what happens is once the brain identifies one of these beliefs as, as part of us, it, it then becomes protected in the same way the rest of the body is protected. So, for instance, if you were in a society of people that believed that the earth was flat, like, and that was central to your identity, that would be just as hard to change as like whether or not you believed in God. It could be, that's right. And, you know, you mentioned the term society there. Um, the sharing your beliefs with a society is another factor here that helps to keep beliefs fixed because, uh, you know, one of the things that beliefs do is they create bonds between us and, and other people, and those bonds are very important to us. So sh having shared beliefs with other people is, is one of the ways in which we become part of a community. And being part of that community can be more important to us than being correct. Um, and, you know, you see this if you ever have to change one of your beliefs that is shared among your community, <laughs> you know what's at stake. I mean, you, you may have to, in order to change your belief, it's not just a matter of changing the facts in your mind. You may have to rearrange your entire social life. If you are going to convince someone to change their mind about a core belief, like one of the things you can offer is community on that side of it, on the side of change. Absolutely, that's right, and that's one of the what's one of the potential motivations for changing one's mind is to connect with the, with a new community, and um, it's it's uh, it, 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 I think that's a, that's an important approach because that's definitely one of the losses is is a potential loss of community. So you can if you can show people that there is a new community to connect with, that that can be very important. 
We're going to take a quick break from my conversation with neuroscientist Jonas Kaplan and pay the bills. Let's take a second to talk about KiwiCo. It's a science and art subscription box for kids, tested by kids, and it's way more fun than any game they can play. I have four nieces. They are in New Jersey. They have been in lockdown for a very long time. It is so great to provide them with something that isn't what they already know. I bet they've explored their home pretty darn thoroughly. And there are different crates for kids of all ages. The nieces and nephews range in age from toddler to 12-year-old, a tween, if you will. So I got them actually two boxes. There's something for every kid on your list. For example, there's the koala crate for ages three and four. That is actually the age of my youngest niece. And it delivers fun, hands-on activities to engage the natural curiosity and creativity of preschoolers in play-based learning. The Atlas Crate for ages 6 to 11 sparks kids' sense of adventure and curiosity, inspiring them to see themselves as a citizen of the world. There's no commitment. You can pause or cancel anytime. KiwiCo is redefining play with hands-on projects that build confidence, creativity, and critical thinking skills. There's something for every kid and kid at heart if you want to play along at KiwiCo. Get your first month free on select crates at kiwico.com slash friends. That's K-I-W-I-C-O dot com slash friends. We deserve to know what we're putting in our bodies and why. And that's why Ritual's founder is on a mission to reinvent the vitamin industry. Kat Scheider and her team of scientists at Ritual are making clinically tested a new normal. Ritual left out mystery additives, synthetic fillers, and shady extras that can be found in some traditional multivitamins. I take Ritual. It is part of my morning ritual. I love the minty smell of the tablets. They don't actually have a minty taste, but there's a wonderful smell when you open the bottle, and it wakes me right up. And, you know, I think taking your vitamins is a little more important now than ever. I like to make sure that my immune system is as boosted as it can be. And for you obsessive label readers, Ritual uses vegan-certified, non-GMO, gluten-free, and allergen-free ingredients. And those ingredients and their sources are out there for the whole world to see. Because Ritual believes you deserve to know what you're putting in your body and why. Daily changes can lead to big results. So start small today. Ritual is offering my listeners 10% off the first three months. Try it out. Satisfaction guaranteed. Go to ritual.com slash friends to start your ritual today. That's 10% off your first three months at ritual.com slash friends. Now, back to Dr. Kaplan and his thoughts about how humanity's recalcitrance might not be such a bad thing. So I I want to get back to sort of political and non-political, again, let's say um, identity affirming or uh, things having to do with your identity and things not having to do with your identity. Because I read another paper that was actually about snap judgments, but it seemed to sort of be along the same lines, which was that even when we make like quick, apparently trivial decisions, they're really hard to undo. That in the in the and the longer that the decision is in place, the harder it is to reverse. There's there's studies showing that if you tell people a piece of information and then five minutes later you inform them that it was a lie that the experimenter just made it up, they still have trouble 
uh, getting rid of it. You can still show evidence of of the belief in place. So that's one of the reasons I think that you know we if we're interested in in uh, having our beliefs conform to the truth, one of the first most important things to do is to uh, put up some kind of line of defense at the beginning, some kind of skepticism so that we don't accept beliefs to begin with, because once we accept them, they're, they're very, very difficult to get rid of. I've read that one theory why the brain behaves that way, um, the self-protective aspect of not changing our minds, has to do with, like, it would be a real chore to have to decide things all day long. That if we had to, like, make up our minds about everything we came across, that would be exhausting. So that so it's an evolutionary adaptation, kind of, to be so stubborn. Yes, I think there's there's probably some value there. And also it might be that it's uh, efficient for us to offload some of our belief formation to the group. You know, if we generally trust the people around us, um, then we don't need to rethink everything. We can just accept what, what everybody believes. There's likely to be some kind of a sweet spot there. It's probably problematic if we just constantly have to change our minds every second and, we're, and our, our models of the world have no stability to them. On the other hand, if our models of the world become so fixed that they can't change with new evidence, we have other problems. So we kind of want to be somewhere in the middle of it. We were talking about identity versus non-identity and, and even how these small uh, snap judgments get hard to undo. And I do wonder if is there a big difference in terms of the kinds of the things we believe like does the brain treat different kinds of beliefs differently or in the sense that some things are identity and other things aren't identity is that the only big distinction we did a brain imaging experiment some years ago looking at is is religious belief different from non-religious belief and so we took a group of fundamentalist christians and we had a group of committed atheists, and we put them both inside the scanner, and we had them evaluate beliefs about religion and about other things as well. We asked for each statement they saw for them to decide whether it was true or not, and then we could look at what's happening in the brain when people are believing versus disbelieving. And we didn't see any difference between believing or disbelieving a religious statement versus a non-religious statement, and there was really no difference whether you were an atheist or a Christian. Believing looked like believing regardless of the content of the information. Now, there were special things happening when everyone thought about religion versus not religion, because those were um, sort of emotional topics for everyone. But there just wasn't a really a real difference between believing and disbelieving, depending on the content of the belief. I said earlier, I think that a lot of people feel like they might understand this sort of science because they see the pictures of the MRI and different areas of the brain, like I said, lighting up. Is there anything that you wish people understood more fully about the kind of work that you do? That's a good question. I think that it's it's difficult to communicate with, with people about the brain because it's so complicated. And it's so complicated to us that we try to simplify it and boil it down and make it understandable. But the fact is that it, it isn't understandable. It's the brain is the most complicated object in the, in the known universe with the density of its interconnectedness. And we often like to talk about the function of brain regions that uh, it's, it's easy to think of them as specialized for one function. So for example, we can equate the amygdala with fear. And it's true, the amygdala is important for fear, um, but, but it isn't true that each brain region has one very, very specific function. We're learning more and more that the brain is just so complicated that all these brain regions interact in complicated dynamic circuits that we don't fully understand. And so the amygdala might be important for fear, but we might also see that it activates 
people are happy um, or when people detect some kind of other emotion, emotion in the environment. So it's very difficult to work backwards from what we see in the brain activity images to what's happening psychologically. I feel like I just made it made it worse instead of better. You know, I like I said, I, I, I throw no shade on what you're doing. It's incredibly complex and important. But I've I've also come across um, you know, that analysis of where we are in terms of understanding the brain and how there's a sense that we are just scratching the surface, as it were, that it is this in like it is funny because my own brain cannot imagine how complex my brain is. Like, where do you think we are in terms of understanding the brain? Are we are we at the sort of medical equivalent of, um, you know, banging on stones? Not quite. Or are we are we far advanced? Like, how far do we have to go? There are some there there are some um, areas of neuroscience that are very, very advanced and some parts of the brain that we understand very, very well. So for example, with perceptual systems in the brain, if we're trying to understand how the brain sees or hears, um, our understanding is very sophisticated and we can even do things like trying to decode what people are seeing from their brain activity. And that's that's a very advanced thing to be able to do. But when, when it comes to the higher cognitive functions, things get blurrier and blurrier. So once we move to a uh, concept of self and, and consciousness and the things that are um, the most uniquely human, our understanding is very, very nascent. Do you think our brains are sabotaging us? <laughs> <laughs> that's, they, that's they don't want a, us a, to a, understand? It's hmm? a very, that's a very deep question. <laughs> <laughs> they don't want themselves to understand, I guess. Um, I saw in one interview that you said that you think the most important thing that people could take away from your work is the understanding of how big a role emotion plays in cognition. Why do you think that's so important? Well, first of all, because it's true. Um, and I think it's it's something that we forget about as neuroscientists and, and often as people when we're talking about reason. You know, um, every everything the brain does is built on a basis of emotion. Emotion is one of the oldest, earliest systems life has for regulating itself and for keeping us alive. And it's a very, very intelligent system. We, we tend to, to pit it against our rational thought as if um, it's the sort of older, stupider way of doing things and our rational minds just need to suppress emotion in order to succeed. And there's a sense in which that's true, but there's also a sense in which it isn't true. You know, when we see people who have brain damage to parts of the brain that help them incorporate emotion into decision making, they aren't uh, perfectly rational robots. They they are actually have quite problematic lives that they they don't make very good decisions at all. Emotions are just so important for our decision making. They're an important source of information that um, we we don't want to suppress and get rid of. We just need to. Uh, allow that information to inform us in a way that that suits our goals best. I really appreciate the ways in which throughout this discussion you've you've brought up sort of real life, you know, the the way our interactions and and how we can see the things you're talking about uh, in some some of our just daily existence. I do wonder, do you ever find yourself trying to change someone's mind? And realize, oh, fuck, like, I shouldn't be doing this. It's not going to work because no one changes their mind. (laughs) 
all the time. I mean, it's irresistible to try, right? Um, and it's, it's part of the reason that I started studying this to begin with, because it just seemed like um, it's so difficult to do uh, to change someone, to witness someone change their mind is so rare. Um, uh, and yet it seems to be so important to be able to do that. I mean, you think about our daily lives, our interactions with people, our whole system of government is based on the idea that we can have discussions and uh, we can talk to each other. And the whole point of talking to each other in that context would be to have some influence on each other. If we're completely impervious to influence, what is the point of a democracy? Um, it's also, you know, the, the basis of science. The whole point of the scientific process is that we can gather new evidence and constantly update our models of the world with new evidence. So it seems to be an incredibly important thing for us to be able to do. And yet it's so rare and so hard to do. I wanted to ask about whether or not your research could point in the direction of techniques that would be persuasive to people. And both of us, I think, are sort of assuming a context that that is good. But, I mean, couldn't persuasive techniques be used for evil as well? Like, is it dangerous to kind of discover the exact kind of buttons you need to press to convince someone of something? Yeah, it's a double-edged sword. I mean, like any scientific power, it can be used for good or, or it can be used for evil. Um, I, I've tended in my own work to try to avoid that issue by switching the issue around on itself instead of trying to identify ways in which we can be more persuasive, to think of ways in which we can leave ourselves more open-minded. Uh, because I think we all do want to be open-minded. We want to be persuadable um, if it's appropriate to be persuaded. And so I prefer to think of the problem that way. What are the things that we can do that put us in a position to be able to take in new information when, when we really should? So I'll turn my previous question around on you, too. What is something really big you've changed your mind on? I get it. I, I get it. I mean, I'm, I'm human just like everyone else. Um, I, I can't think of a good example. I get asked this question a lot. You would think I would have a good answer for it by now. Um, but I struggle with every time. I can't think of one that's sufficiently interesting. I mean, I change my mind and <laughs> it changed my mind in small ways all the time. And that's, you know, part, part of science. My, my views about certain parts of the brain work are very different now than, than they were when I first started studying the brain. But that's not the kind of interesting sort of um, identity related switch that you would want to hear about. Although it does make me think of something, which is one way to cultivate that kind of flexibility in ourselves would be to not take things so personally, would be to just invest less of our identity in ideas that we maybe can't know for sure, which is the scientific approach, right? I totally agree with that. That's right. So to, to keep your beliefs about the world at an arm's distance from you, to treat them as provisional models of the world that you're willing to update and not to become too attached to them. It's a sort of a Buddhist philosophy a little bit there to, to, to maintain some detachment from, from yourself and from your models of the world. I want to get back to something else you said in your paper, which is that there are very good reasons why people don't change their mind. As much as we might talk about how wonderful it is to be flexible. There are there are reasons people to resist, and they're not bad reasons, and they're not bad people for resisting. That's right. I mean, we mentioned earlier that it would be a problem if our world models were so instable that they changed all the time. It would be hard to make plans if if our models of the world were changing all the time, right? Um, and then, you know, for a lot of things, the the social bonds that 
that we form from these beliefs um, are rightfully important to us. You know, like you were talking about having a conversation, I think, with your your mother, and it, you may decide that your relationship with your mother is just more important than what the two of you believe about a particular approach to the virus. Um, and that's a totally rational uh, response to have to changing your mind. Um, on the other hand, we also don't want to be um, we don't want to be so persuadable that um, you know, we are we are gullible that we can be persuaded by misinformation. We have to be uh, sufficiently skeptical of new information so that we have an appropriate filter, and that sort of automatically puts us in a position of a stance of, of uh, a bias against changing our minds. So you said that you're working on, for instance, mindfulness. Is that your next frontier? What is the thing that you want to get to next as far as exploring this kind of activity in the brain? Yeah, we really want to know um, what, what works. I mean, to have some kind of a method that increases our belief flexibility would be great and to understand how that works in the brain. So mindfulness is one thing, and we know that mindfulness meditation can affect some of the brain systems we saw um, active when people were challenged in their political beliefs in our study. Um, meditating can actually reduce activity in those brain regions. Um, we also uh, know that you know framing arguments in particular ways can make them more appealing to people. We want to know what are the neural correlates of that framing? What are the neural mechanisms that allow us to be open to arguments if they're framed in one way or another? Another thing I, I'm really interested in is, is narratives and stories, because stories can be very influential. And in a lot of ways, when we read something in the form of a story, it doesn't evoke our defenses in the same way. It doesn't bring up that um, self-defensive response we have and, and, and lead to a backfire effect. Because uh, stories are, they kind of lull us into some different state of mind where we're willing to suspend our disbelief. And in that way, I think of narratives as kind of like Trojan horses that can get information in past the defenses. So I'm really interested in how that works and what the systems in the brain that support narrative are, are playing a role in, in belief flexibility. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And that is it for the show. Next week, we'll be talking about the dark side of this mind-changing business. What happens when people use coercion to force or attempt to force others to change their beliefs? You can call it brainwashing or mind control or maybe even a timeshare presentation seminar. We'll be diving into the scientific evidence for how and how well brainwashing works. One last thing. With this new season, we could really use your help in getting the word out about the show and the project, so I'm going to try a little mind control myself. Wouldn't you like to rate and review this show? Even if you already have, you would love to rate and review this show. Rating and reviewing this show is something you want to do. And you want to tweet about it and tell your friends. Tweeting and telling your friends about this show is the thing you want to do. Please, rate and review. Tell your friends. And until next week, take care of yourselves. <laughs> <laughs>